0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Jen Mannion, an associate professor of history at Amherst College. Her book, Liberty's Prisoners, Carceral Culture in Early America, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press, is the topic of this show. Mannion offers a detailed examination of how the reform regiments of incarceration developed as a new American nation was experiencing deep social and political transformation. The place of women, African Americans, immigrants, and the poor was recast by new attitudes toward maintaining the social order through the patriarchal family, heterosexual regulation, and the property system. Penitentiaries were designed to replace harsh British methods of corporal punishment with Republican reform for those accused of property crimes, vagrancy, and public disorder. Reform would be imposed through a system of work and submission to disciplinary authority. Within the walls of the prison, women could approximate the model of domesticity and submission, while men face the challenge of demonstrating manly responsibility within a system of denigration. Both men and women charged with crimes, resisted the imposition of gender expectations and social hierarchies, making their own claims to liberty. Mannion not only looks at the gender dynamics, but also how race and ethnicity shape the experience of prisoners as potentially good citizens. By examining the social history of a failed penal system, liberty's prisoners offers a window into the gender and race systems of the new republic. Here is my conversation with Jen Mannion. Now let me introduce you to the author Jen Mannion. Hello Jen. Hi there. Welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. From the title of the book it would appear that gender has little to do with the development of the prison system you describe. But once I got into it I saw that gender was very much present all the way along all the way through the book. But before we get into the book Tell us something about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Liberty's Liberty's Prisoners.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, thanks so much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Um, I received uh, my Ph.D. from Rutgers University uh, with a concentration in women and gender history. So uh, thinking very deliberately about centering women's lives and then also doing uh, a feminist analysis Of history has always been uh, really important to me, and I think at the heart of all my work.
0: Okay, one of the things that you do right away is you talk about this prison system that was developed in Philadelphia was part of a reform movement. It was a reform movement from the British system. So, what did the criminal punishment, crime and punishment, look like in the British system? That would they would need reform.
1: Sure. So the you know the British penal code was uh, by most accounts excessive, harsh, violent, unforgiving, brutal. Uh, conditions in prisons were degrading, and uh, it was one of the central issues of contention um, in, in Quaker colonial Pennsylvania, um, fighting back and fo- back and forth with the crown over what the penal system in colonial Pennsylvania would look like, because Quakers wanted something uh, very, very different.
0: Well, it seemed like um, the British system relied heavily on corporal punishment, capital punishment, uh, shaming, not so much on prisons.
1: Sure, yeah. So excessive reliance on capital punishment, um, even for crimes that we might now think of as relatively minor and yes, corporal punishment and fines and fees. Um, so, you know, one of the main changes um, in this philosophy, um, you know, I think I argue it was influenced by several different forces. You know, one is the enlightenment of this idea of that people are rational and that we should appeal to their reason and try to give them incentives uh, to be different that people could, in the right circumstances, become a better version of themselves. Um, and so that was very much at the heart of the creation of the penitentiary so that you could go to a place and repent uh, as opposed to, you know, physical corporal punishments um, that had been so heavily relied on that would give people, you know, really no incentive uh, to try to change.
0: Now, the reformers, uh, the 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 American reformers who were trying to change this old British system and make it more uh, Republican, more enlightened, who were these people?
1: Um, Yeah, so a lot of them were, you know, leading statesmen, doctors, lawyers, politicians. Um, They had their hands in everything at this time. You'll see a list, you know, the same list of names of people who were starting the first hospital, starting the first public schools, uh, starting the prison system, uh, literally, you know, drafting uh, the Constitution, uh, signing the Constitution. So, you know, Benjamin Rush, for example, who was a doctor, uh, who was one of the leading voices in this effort, was one of the, you know, signed the Constitution. So, um It was a very elite, educated uh, group of men, some of whom were influenced um, by religion and religious uh, ideals of humanitarianism, uh, but not all.
0: So what kinds of crimes were the target of punishment, for the reform of punishment? It wasn't just all crime. It was certain kinds of crime.
1: Well, I think there are different... I think I've, my book is organized um, classifies, uh, several, there are several different categories of prisoners. So the central group that w- was the target of reformative incarceration were people who were convicted of a crime that carried a sentence of one year or more. And overwhelmingly during this period for men and women that ended up being larceny. So petty theft. A whole other group of people who get caught up in the system in a more temporary but widespread way are uh, classified as vagrants. So people who are imprisoned uh, under vagrancy laws or thrown in jail for 30 days without trial for drinking, for swearing, for public disorderly conduct, um, a whole host of uh, social you know social disruptive kinds of uh, behaviors
0: so these are and then, the, so these are the people that that they felt were open to reform could be reformed. we're not talking here about hardened like people who kill other people, uh very extreme violent crimes, we're talking about what now we would consider more minor infractions that they felt could be reformed
1: is that is that the case? Yes and no. So, you know, murder is still punishable by death. There there was a move to limit the number of crimes that were punishable by death, and they did that during this period. But, of course, um, premeditated murder was still punishable by death. The primary people, you know, who are targeted, you know, were, were stealing, right? So they're property crimes there was a whole other group of people who were committing low-level violent crimes who were not targeted. Um, vi- physical assault and assault and battery and threatening was very common in colonial life and in urban areas and was not punishable by a prison sentence. It was punishable by a fine or a fee. Um, so in some respects, what we see here is that crimes against property – were taken much more seriously than most crimes against people.
0: Now, what's interesting uh, that you <clears> talk <throat> about when it starts about the gender dynamics here is that criminality um, was cast as male, mm-hmm. which provided actually, in a way, in a, a way out for women, <laughs> but not, not really. It was kind of a strange uh, benefit for women, for criminality to be considered a male thing. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, it still is. And I think, you know, so, for example, I think one of the things that I show that first establishes this is, you know, in their first wave of reforms, uh, they introduce public labor Um, in the streets as the punishment, but they don't ever send women to work in the streets. They only have men working in the street. And so uh, it renders the women who have been convicted of crimes invisible. Like they're not never the public face um, of punishment at the same time. You know, this is where uh, considering the role of race and racial difference is really important because, black women um, are disproportionately criminalized. Um, so it's, you know, the gender dynamic that in some ways obscures and doesn't see women's uh, crime as, as serious or as threatening or as important as men's crime is something that, you know, benefits white women uh, much more so than black women.
0: Okay, let's talk about that first prison in Philadelphia you talk about, it. and you talk about the wheelbarrow men and why that backfired. Mm-hmm. What, what was what, what was the situation in that first prison? It was sort of set up as a, a place to for people to work, and what's interesting about that is that today, of course, lots of people would say, "Why aren't prisoners working? Okay? There's still that idea that people in prison should be working and being productive.
1: Yeah, well, they do. I mean, and that's exactly what the argument at the time was. I think um, the biggest, re, you know, argument against creating these structures that would house prisoners is how are we going to pay for them? And so, you know, there the idea came, well, let's have them labor um, and, and improve, you know, benefit the city, uh, clean the streets, build, you know, work on public works projects. Um, as a way to, you know, both instill a Protestant work ethic and also help to earn some money that would offset the cost of their keep.
0: But what was the problem with that? Because the, there was a little scene there about the wheelbarrow men and how they sort of took advantage of the fact that they were in public.
1: Right. So, again, this was only ever men. The women were never um, sent to work in public, but the men basically didn't behave the way that reformers hoped or expected them. I mean, the reformers wanted these guys to be grateful uh, to have the chance uh, to be treated, you know, with in their eyes, uh, which was leniency and respect and an opportunity to improve themselves. Um, but the prisoners uh, didn't, uh, you know, submit to that, you know, and so they were, they would, you know, interact with the general public while they were out on the streets, they would talk to people, they would swear at people, they would ask people for money, uh, they could be violent with people, uh, they could plot, you know, use their opportunity away from the prison to, you know, kind of strategize with each other about how to escape. And so and people did escape. And so they got a lot of complaints from the general public about the behavior of the wheelbarrow men.
0: Now, women were also working. They weren't working in public, but they were working within the prison. What was the role of women's labor within the prison?
1: Yeah, so, you know, women, you know, really had two jobs. So they would tend to, you know, basically like housekeeping. You know, they were like the housekeepers of the prison. Um, So they were often responsible for cleaning um, and cooking and, uh, you know, and then also producing clothing, um, so they might be spinning uh men would usually weave the woman wouldn't necessarily weave, but then the women would turn the woven fabric um, into clothing for themselves and other inmates
0: and what was the attitude of women in the prison in this you know to this work? because it seemed that that work was was made to sort of shape them into the kinds of women that the the new republic wanted, yeah, homemakers. Women at home, doing domestic things, supporting the men. The men are out working. Right.
1: Yeah, it was a very, in some ways, it was, um, It was in some ways, it was a throwback. It was like forcing them into uh, a traditional role when so many of them were in prison for rejecting that traditional role. Um, they might have lived on the streets. They might have. Um, worked as sex workers. They might have, you know, run tippling houses and sold alcohol on the side. So some percentage of them are women who rejected, uh, being caretakers and providers, uh, for men in that way. And so this was very much, um, like, uh, putting them in their place, uh, so to, so to say. Uh, but for another group of them, you know, they were formerly enslaved people. Uh, and servants who had long done the domestic work of someone else's household, right? And so then this is, in many ways, just a continuation of uh, their life's work uh, before they were imprisoned.
0: I think the most interesting uh, chapter in your book is this uh, second chapter called Sentimental Families, because the Reformers had very strong assumptions about what a family was supposed to be, what men and women were supposed to do, what the relationship between men and women was, the children. And they assumed that these people that were criminals who had been arrested and were now in prison, they assumed that they would also aspire to the same sort of uh, gender relationships. So what were the assumptions that were being made about families, about women, and that the reformers were seeking to kind of impose on this prison population that probably never had had the middle class, you know, family structure that the reformers had. They, right. they had family structures, but there were different family right. structures that were not recognized by the reformers. So, can you talk a little bit about? what their family structure was and how the reformers were trying to shape it into their vision of what they thought a family was supposed to be.
1: Yeah, well, I think this is where it comes out, how just out of touch the reformers were with, you know, what the lives of, you know, poor and working people were like. Um, and also the fact that the whole paradigm that they set up um, was really you know, with a male prisoner in mind. So, you know, when Benjamin Rush, you know, writes this, uh, treatise about how after their time in prison, uh, you know, the, the newly reformed man will, you know, go, you know, back out into society where his wife and children and community await the opportunity to welcome them with open arms and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It's just, there's no place for a female criminal in that vision um, for so many different reasons. I'd say two of them being that overwhelmingly the women who end up incarcerated um, are not married um, or not a part of a, you know, traditional uh, family structure. Like so many of them, are in for crimes of survival, which they're doing because they're single women trying to survive, you know, in a city and in an an economy that is designed to make it nearly impossible uh, for anyone to do that. There are also single mothers um, who, by virtue of being incarcerated, lose custody of their children. So it's, you know, there's no, like, other side... Uh, that when these women get out, you know, their husband and child are waiting for them. It's just like the very act of incarceration has destroyed their family structure uh, as it existed.
0: And also, these were not women who were used to being homemakers. These women were working. They were out in uh, the public and they were doing all kinds of things trying to survive. Like you said, economics was driving them. So here the reformers are trying to kind of restore them or reform them into this Middle class woman, yeah, who, and they it was totally out of context.
1: Yeah, there's no place for them there. It's just not even if they wanted to be that, it's not an—it's not an economic option for their lives.
0: Now, the 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 prisoners, men and women both, really picked up what the reformers wanted in terms of family uh, feelings and sentiments. So they, in your book, you talk about how they they used. Uh, family reasons to get leniency, to get out earlier. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the places, um, it's one of the few places where we have records of prisoners' voices, um, these petitions um, that they would write. Um, it, it is important to note you know, that many of the prisoners themselves would um not necessarily be able to write them and many of them would have been illiterate, but uh, some of the reformers took it um, as a part of their charge to, you know, try to capture the experience of uh, the prisoners uh, and, you know, generate sympathy uh, from the board of inspectors who did have the authority to commute sentences um, or to, you know, so many people served their time but they didn't have the funds to pay the fines or fees um, which was just the gravest injustice and then and now right when you think about it um, but so you know men and women would kind of craft them their experiences and needs in these petitions in very very different ways um, and so women were always talking about children um, that they needed uh, that they that they would you know as that they crafted themselves like as mothers and their primary role as mothers and caretakers of their children um and they would describe um the the various circumstance of struggle destitute uh vulnerability that their children were dealing with without them and how much they needed them and men of course um, as we might guess uh crafted themselves as you know providers, uh, for families. Um, you know, knowing that that is one of the main things that the prison reformers wanted for these men was to understand themselves, uh, to grow into the idea that they were, they were, and could be like proper citizens. They could be good fathers. They could be productive workers. They could be moral, Um, And that by putting all these ideas uh, that the reformers were focusing on into their letters, uh, that it would kind of stake. It would show both some, a little bit of submission to the project, um, but also uh, some agency and independence, like they were ready to go.
0: So the the issue with men was a little bit more difficult because they had to show Male agency and responsibility, and sort of taking charge, but then they had to show some sort of deference and submission to the to, to the officials in order to get off. So it's like, how do you play that? You know, how do you show responsibility and agency and all this kind of thing that was considered manly? At the but you also had to show deference. So they were really it was harder yeah. for them yeah, to they
1: never walking a tightrope.
0: For sure. Uh, negotiating masculinity uh, and trying to get off. Yeah. Um, I thought that that chapter was really, really interesting about the, the how uh, they were using the family reasons to make their case, uh, regardless of the reality of what that family actually was. So let's go into the, the next chapter where you talk about, uh, dangerous publics, and in, in, in this one, you really talk about all the different kinds of acts that were public acts that were criminalized, and how certain crimes that had, before had been um, subject to the death penalty were hit were with more leniency in some crimes. Uh, they were not prosecuted as much. Can you talk about which crimes were prosecuted uh, less? What Off the top of my head, I don't remember. Okay. Um, So I think I'm thinking more about uh, the the sexual crimes. Mm -hmm. uh, The the sexual crimes were a little bit loosened. Okay, okay.
1: Right. So the um, crimes uh, for the punishment for sodomy, Right. Had been a capital crime and that was no longer um, infanticide uh, had long the burden of proof had been on the mother uh, to overwhelmingly demonstrate um, that her that her child was born dead and that she didn't kill it. And that kind of has flipped 180 degrees um, over the you know, 20 the year period
0: um and there's one other- it was also the idea I think that that uh women at this time the, the ideas of women were changing women had previously been thought of as being lustful and uh you know seductive to men and the ideas about women were changing was was changing what was considered a crime because now right. women become much more like victims and passive and Uh, So a lot of sexual crimes that previously might have been uh, the fault of women became a little bit more neutral.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I definitely understand uh, the decriminalization of, you know, sexual crimes in this period um, to be a result of the overwhelming uh, value given to private property and that the criminal justice system was much more concerned with protecting property rights uh, than it was policing uh, morals and, you know, and and sexual indiscretions. Um, I think it's a function of the political culture. It's a function of the explosive population at this time. Um, And, yeah, it predates what we would see as a, a cracking down on this kind of uh, urban sexual culture uh, that does happen later in the century.
0: Okay. What about uh, violent crimes? It seemed like the violent crimes were treated differently for men and women.
1: Yeah, again, it's, you know, so they're, you know, when we think about violence, um, Uh, of course, we think uh, about murder, um, but that was a, a, certainly a, a rare, uh, a rare occurrence and a minority of the cases. What is rampant um, in the city at this time, and I think other scholarship has shown also in the countryside, it's it's a violent time um, for everybody. And so uh, there is, I think, that was one of the biggest shocks to me in doing the research, was just the high incidence of assault charges and how many times uh, you know, women were charging other women with assault um, and men were charging women with assault. You know, we often think of this kind of violence in a, you know, a heteronormative uh, male perpetrator, female victim kind of paradigm um, or as a function of, you know, a masculine public sphere. But, it was much more dynamic uh, than that. And I think it's interesting that so many people thought that they could get redress through the court system by filing complaints um, because very little happened. I mean, people would, uh, most of these cases would be thrown out if there wasn't, if, because the other witnesses wouldn't show up to testify um and then the punishment is is just a small fee So
0: uh isn't it isn't the case i think i read in your book that uh, women uh were more likely to have more lenient sentences uh, imposed upon them for assault than men
1: mm-hmm. mm. um so the punishments for assault would be fines and
0: fees uh not sentences okay okay all right, uh, let's go on to the role of, of of race in this scenario because Philadelphia here is a hotbed of abolitionist activity there's a, you know there's a lot of people talking about doing away with slavery, but it seems uh, from your book and the evidence that you're presenting that uh, incarceration and in the the criminal justice system becomes sort of a replacement for slavery. It's another way to deny African-American freedom by denying um, justice.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think that's one of the most um, upsetting uh, findings of my book, um, to see how strongly uh, the two correlate, uh, that the movement to abolish slavery is met um, with such... Uh, clear and uh, criminalization of African-Americans without really much, you know, reflection about the relationship between the two, even among people who we think of as the good guys in this moment. If we think of uh, many Quakers um, and, and white, even white abolitionists at this time, um, being influenced by the conservative backlash of the colonization movement in the 1820s and 30s, um, and how that overwhelmed um, this earlier generation uh, that was much more radical and committed to black freedom, that, that just got eclipsed.
0: Yeah, it seemed like that the, the African Americans were charged with more crimes because they could they. They could be engaged in uh, things that were uh, race-related. In other words, they, they had boundaries to their freedom. Even the free the free blacks had boundary to their freedom that white people didn't have. So they could more easily be charged with more things, mm-hmm. or it w- or the or the law was applied more vigorously to them in terms of uh, vagrancy and and whatever larceny. Well,
1: yeah. In some ways, it was even a more literal, uh, you know, relationship because Pennsylvania when Pennsylvania passed the Gradual Abolition Act in 1780, it offered freedom uh, to enslaved people who could cross the state's borders. So just so you there is an influx of uh, formerly enslaved, free, runaway African-Americans into Philadelphia at this time. Uh, because of that opportunity. And so I think hypothetical freedom for the existing black community in Philadelphia was one thing, but then once the community was growing exponentially and white Philadelphians were faced with the task of really treating uh, free blacks uh, as their peers um, and fairly and equally, with all the rights and responsibilities that they had, they just like weren't up to it. Um, and, and the carceral state was growing and it was just empowered at the very same moment um, to police exactly the kinds of spaces that you know, newly arrived free blacks would be, um, just hanging out and looking for work um, and building community those kinds of social spaces were targeted
0: so what you th- this means of course that there's more African Americans from the beginning in prison is this correct
1: or- so so for the first ten years or so of the penitentiary um, Irish immigrants also are very well represented um so there is a time when I think you know, free blacks and the poorest of European immigrants um, are experiencing the carceral state in similar ways, but then that quickly shifts. Um, and then the numbers that we've grown so accustomed to hearing about the dramatically disproportionate incarceration of African-Americans – Happens very early in the early decades of the nineteenth century.
0: Now, this uh, this racial uh, imbalance of, of of justice comes into the prison among the mm-hmm. prisoners. Mm-hmm. Talk about race effect- relations within the prison in terms of how the officials uh, relate to the prisoners, uh, black prisoners, white pr- prisoners, and how prisoners relate to each other.
1: Sure. Well, we definitely know, you know, that black men and white men would be held together in the same cells. Black women and white women uh, would be held together in the same cells, um, especially in the early decades. As time goes on, and and the the prison is deemed to be ineffective and in a state of chaos, and they're already seeing the recidivism rates are quite high. One of the main tools used uh, to try to change it is segregation. Uh, so somewhere along the way, we're not exactly sure when um, they institute, you know, racial segregation as a policy, um, and that's it's more much it's more important among the men than among the women. And I think that's, uh, of course, because they're spending much more time with the men and the the men's days are much more structured uh, because they're still uh, being subject to this routine um, that, you know, of get up at the right hour, go to the workshop, go pray, wash yourself, you know, in hopes that uh, they will be reformed. Um, For women, it's much less structured. Um, and so we do believe that women of different racial and ethnic groups were still kept together um, more frequently uh, and in later years. You know, that does reflect life outside of the prison, too, in the early American city. We have a fair amount of evidence um, that shows, uh, you know, a pretty dynamic interracial uh, community uh, in the, among the laboring classes.
0: What were the conditions in the prison? Besides, you know, they're working, Oh, you know, what are the the physical situation there?
1: Uh, you know, they're definitely terrible. Um, uh, people are s- sparsely clothed. Um, they have to turn over their clothes when they are admitted. They're given uh, often, the women are given a thing called a shift, which is basically like a nightgown. The men get a shirt. Um uh, they might have that taken from them or it might just kind of disintegrate or wear out throughout the course of their imprisonment. So there are reports of uh, prisoners being naked. Uh, people might have a blanket. They might not have a blanket. Uh, you might have a straw bed uh, to sleep on. You might not have a bed to sleep on. Um, people are crowded together in cells and, um, Some reports upwards of 40 people, you know, in a cell that was designed uh, for six. It's cold. It's damp. You're fed, you know, the bare minimum amount of food that you need as a human being uh, to survive. Men are fed more than women because it was believed that their work was more arduous um, and they needed the fuel. It's terror. People died. Um, people were sick.
0: You talk about uh, there were some reformers who tried to address the conditions of the prison and were involved in some sort of trying to provide f- aid. But mm-hmm. apparently it wasn't enough. Yeah.
1: So it's it's you know, it's complicated. There was a long you know, there were also especially the prison. I talk about Walnut Street. Uh, in Philadelphia, and it was right on a main thoroughfare. So the prisoners, in if you were on the first floor of a certain uh, one side, you could. There were a lot of people that would walk by that you could yell out to um, and ask for things. And people, you know, did people did sometimes give prisoners communications or food. Um, so. Oh, and the right. So the question of alms. So you know, I think I, you know, I I try to problematize it because on the one hand, you know, these reformers did focus a lot on uh, the giving, making sure that women had more blankets and shifts, um, which, in in obviously, is like the barest minimum, right? Um, That it was a part of. It made them feel good about themselves, like they were doing good works, and they were addressing this immediate suffering of people being cold and naked. And uh, my worry, or was that that kind of they let themselves off the hook from dealing with more serious structural problems?
0: Right, which is this seems to be the the way of reformers, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, I want to ask you about the uh, the set uh, the gender segregation within the prison um i'm assuming that they were segregated from the beginning but it seems to me that th- it seems like there was in your book uh issues with regulating sex within the prison um uh, men with men i don't know about women but men and women uh th- there was regulating sex within the prison walls can you talk a little about some of the issues there
1: sure so in the, you know, the, before these institutions became penitentiaries, uh, they were county jails, uh, that were basically where people would be sent while they were awaiting trial or if they were unable to pay their finer fee. So it was always temporary and, and they weren't highly regulated. And so that's where we have these accounts of men and women, uh, all being kept in the same room and people having sex together. And this becomes one of the first targets of the grand jury in 1785 when they go to investigate the conditions. Um, and they're horrified uh, that men and women are able to have sex uh, while they're in jail, awaiting trial or, you know, to pay their finer fees. Um and so sex segregation then becomes, like, the first reform uh, that they institute. Um, and it becomes the model for all of the other uh, forms of segregation that they do down the line. Racial segregation, age segregation, uh, segregation by the classification of the crime that you committed. So it starts with sex segregation. So, you know, I characterize this as the first sex panic um, because it fuels, like, such an important... Uh, movement. But then down the line, the concern is men having sex with each other.
0: Okay, so it's very difficult to control uh, an imprisoned population uh, in terms of sex regulation. But I think the point of your book up to this point, uh, we've touched on so many areas, was that it tells us something about the larger society. I saw the prison as sort of a microcosm of gender and race dynamics that were going on in a larger society. So can you tell us, uh, uh, can you extrapolate? What are you, what are you telling us about this period of America with this, with this monograph?
1: Uh, I think it's dynamic. It's chaotic. It's diverse. It's integrated. It's alive. I think elites are freaking out uh, because Uh, They are no longer in control in some of the same ways that they were uh, both prior to the revolution and when indentured when when most of this class would have been uh, enslaved or uh, in a system of bound servitude. Um, Now people are free workers. Um, You know, I can't. I don't know that I can even still yet imagine what it would have been like to be alive at that time. I don't know that I can even put myself uh, there. I think it was a time of incredible optimism and hope. If you were a worker um, or a working person or even a woman of, you know, a range of different class backgrounds, like, you know, that the revolution, the promises of the revolution, like, were for you, like freedom and liberty, and justice, like, that, you know, and equality, like, that this was really going to happen, right? So, like, on the one hand, it's just this exciting time uh, of change and and possibility, and then all around you, you see it being eclipsed by these other forces.
0: But it seemed to me like that the reformers themselves um – the, the, in a way, the benefit to the reformers was it was a way for them to establish a, a tighter grip mm-hmm. on the race and gender and sexuality of the population through through this prison reform. It was their way of exercising their uh, okay, yeah, we're all free, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it our way. Yeah, so, you know. Hmm. Because I'm trying you to think, know, oh, why would they do this? What is the benefit to the reformers? They're definitely getting something out of this system.
1: Well, I think one of the things that I see is, you know, they're trying to create what they imagine a democratic society should be. So... A, a, a strict authoritarianism isn't going to cut it, right? Um, so that so it's like it's just a little more flexible.
0: Are they optimists? Optimist? It seems to me like they had a very high um, belief or optimism of the male ability of human nature, that you could take human beings, that you could – shape them in yeah. particular ways. And they were very optimistic and it seemed like their good intentions just went awry. They could not it could not it didn't work.
1: So I think that and then I think they had a real blind spot about how the material conditions of a person's life you know shapes everything. So if you're homeless and starving your primary concern is to find food and shelter, however you can do that. And they would just not look at the larger structural changes that had taken place that left so many people um, unemployed and homeless and just struggling to survive.
0: So how did the – one of the things that you say in your conclusion is that the modern penitentiary uh, was a failure.
1: So did, did they see it as a failure? Yeah, they saw it as a failure. So this start they start this in 1790 by 18 the 1820s all the reports from the official board of inspectors are assessing where did we go wrong? Why did this not work? How can we fix it? And so what you see from that moment until today um, is a, a like Try is an attempt to you know put a band aid on something, right? That it just never worked, and so they tweak it, they expand it. But fun, the fundamental premise we could say was always flawed.
0: And what was that premise that was flawed?
1: That you know. Removing people from their families, their communities, their jobs, uh, and putting them away um, was ever going to have a positive impact on the greater
0: society. Right. Because one of the things, there was something in your book where somebody said they went to prison and they actually learned... (laughs) how to be criminals. I mean, they learn more ways to circumvent the outside, outside world. Yeah. Uh, You talk about, I think there was some young woman that was very kind of innocent when she ended up in prison, but uh, she comes out, she's like very sophisticated. Now she knows a lot of things she didn't know before.
1: That, and that was a common story and they knew it and they heard it again and again uh, that, you know, the penitentiary was actually a school of vice. Um, I think the problem is, you know, even though one of the goals of punishment, of course, is to hold the person who committed the crime accountable, uh, the larger goal is to protect society. Right. the social good is the larger goal. And uh, people didn't think through uh, or wouldn't, you know, acknowledge the reality of how putting people in prison ultimately did not serve the greater social good.
0: One of the things you talk about earlier in the book, when you talk about enlightened justice, you talk about some of the goals uh, or the objectives of, of punishment. And there's the punitive aspect of it. There's the reforming, the you know, the, the prisoner or the criminal, there's deterrent deterrent, trying to keep other people from doing it because they're kind of an example of this is what happens to you if you break the law. And then there's restorative uh, aspect. And it it seemed like they were trying to put all these together, all these different things together, but it ended up becoming more punitive than anything else. Right. Yeah, well,
1: you know, a lot of... some of those values conflict with each other, right? So if we're trying to cultivate uh, productivity and have the prisoners earn their keep, then how we're going to treat them, what their days are going to look like, is going to be different than if we're uh, focusing on moral reform, right? So, uh, again, and even just there was also conflict between prison authorities and police, Because the prison authorities wanted low numbers of inmates so that they could keep control of it and implement their vision, Um, but you have constables who are increasingly just dragging in all kinds of people off the street for being intoxicated late at night and then crowding the jails and making them unable to keep people separate. And right, so there's just so there's so many
0: competing. Um, interests from the beginning, uh, okay. that also yeah we can't nobody and we still today we're still arguing about what is what is the role of of punishment in in crime what what are we trying to do are we trying to reform people restore something to the victim or or what is it that we're trying to do or punish some people sure. just punish them uh, and I think we unless we get that straightened out we're never going to figure this out exactly what you know- we're trying to do. So what I want to ask you is, what is the takeaway for the reader who reads this book? What would you like other historians or other people who are reading this book to, to, to get, take away from this book? And how does it fit into a larger story of the early republic?
1: Well, I think the most important takeaway is that if you want to understand, uh, you know, mass incarceration in America today and uh, figure out how to address it, that its roots are in the very founding of the nation. Uh, that mass incarceration didn't pop up overnight. It's not even um, just a result of, you know, the 1970s and 1980s, that the ideas that underpin the entire system um, were developed at the same time that the country was developed. So it's, you know, in this respect, you know, the history of the early republic has a lot to tell us.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Jen, for your time. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. You can reach me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.